Recorded during the Plague Year 2020, this is the Andromeda Minute, a show where Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays we go over one minute of Robert Wise's all-too-timely 1971 techno-thriller, The Andromeda Strain. One minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I am this week's guest host, Brian Fees. I'm a graphic novelist whose most recent book is A Fire Story. I was also a physics major, and I've been a chemist for a while, so uh, we'll try to bring all that to bear. Brian, you are a master storyteller, and we are in the middle of well, one of the lesser storytelling portions of this, it's, but it's uh, it's fascinating nonetheless. Uh, we, we are eking every ounce of storytelling we can out of these these minutes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tricky. Um, I, one thing that I didn't notice until this particular minute is that nobody has a watch on because they, they left them all up on level one. And uh, ah. so I guess they just have to look at the clock on the wall. You know, the one that it doesn't have a countdown to nuclear Armageddon. Well, you've also got that omnipotent ticky 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 that tells you, you know, it's nine oh five a.m. But they yeah. probably can't see that. That's that's true. Um, the omniscient narrator. They do have that gigantic uh, VT fifty two terminal they can type with two fingers. At um, I, I I don't remember. Uh, back back in the day, I don't think there there were that many people who were typists, but I would think that PhDs were because you had to learn typing just so you could crank out your dissertation. I wouldn't think that you'd put a dissertation in longhand on a yellow pad and have somebody else type it up. But but you could hire people to type for you. That is true. That is true. Yeah, I I, I would I would think the opposite. You know, I I actually got my first job out of college. I, was a, I became a newspaper reporter, and I think the only reason I got the job was because I was the fastest typist who applied, <laughs> I, because I had very few other qualifications. But, um, but particularly in, you know, in the 70s and such, when this movie was made and when you and I were growing up, it was, it was pretty unusual for boys to learn typing, especially. Um, I took it as a summer school class, and it really you know, set me apart. Wow. Well, I had uh, I was fortunate to go to uh, the IBM Watson Research Center in Yorktown Heights. Uh, I belonged to an Explorer post, and uh, IBM would let let you come in every Tuesday night and play on a System 370 computer. And we'd you know sit down at a, a 3270 uh, video monitor and, and clack away. And I kind of learned typing that way. My mom was a typist, so she had a typewriter at home, and uh, I would try out some of her. Uh, they had a typing, you know, Smith Corona uh, tutorials and things. So I always thought that it was something that it was it was good to know just you know as a just in case thing. In um, now we can the... have a conversation because okay. the Lawrence Hall of Science uh, up above uh, UC Berkeley used to do the same thing. Uh, we would take field trips, and then uh, you could also just go there yourself. And for some small amount of money, you could go sit at their computer. Uh, and I don't know what computer, what kind of computer it was. I don't remember. But um, you could, you could, uh, you could talk to Eliza. Oh, and, okay. <laughs> you know, you could, you could get therapy from a computer, and uh, and you could play um, a uh, an, like an ASCII version of Star Trek. You know, where you did tippy 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 tip like a, a ten by ten screen of X's and a Klingon was a K or something. Yeah. And I, I and and you know it was like. It was like radio. It was like imagine the theater of the imagination to play these games. Um, I don't think I've played as thrilling a video game as I did when I was, you know, maybe 14, 15 years old in Lawrence Hall of Science, shooting Klingons with my photon torpedo P, you know. 
Yeah, um, and, and and you learned more about uh, radians and how to figure out where, you know, how to aim your phaser or what the power exactly setting was. Exactly right. And it was in radians, so you had, well, what is that? And you got two pi over, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you're, you're looking at this little, this little uh, screen printed out, and it's like, okay, five up and two over, five up and two over. So you're doing all this geometry in your head and then converting to radians or whatever and setting power levels, and, and uh, uh, it was just... Uh, God, those were the days, weren't they? Yeah, it was. That was the uh, that was the 1970s equivalent of uh, Kerbal, the Kerbal Space Program. I think you learn more just sitting down at one of those. I think I learned more about strategies and tactics than I, I would have by you know reading all of uh, Hornblower series. It, it was it, it was an amazing time. I, I I consider I consider that time very fortunate that it, it kind of gave me an edge when computers started arriving in your house. Yeah, and, and uh, the idea that gee, it's not—it's not something that you have to be, uh, you know, a galaxy brain super genius to understand. It's just you have to be able to write things down in steps, and then tell the computer exactly what how you want them to follow the steps. Yeah, um, and yeah, and I was, was I was happening. a wizard uh, basic, and then in college I learned Fortran and uh, was immediately obsolete. We've talked about this, but yeah, I learned Fortran in in college. It was a required course for physics majors, and. Uh, uh, I learned it with um, with uh, you know punch cards, and you'd get your whole program and a stack of punch cards in a shoebox, and you'd feed them into the clickety clackety machine, and it either worked or it didn't, and you'd shuffle the cards around, and you could screw up your your rival's program by shuffling his <laughs> cards around, and uh, the very next year, the very next quarter after I learned all this, they took out the clickety clack machine. Nobody ever used punch cards ever again for the rest of the history of the planet Earth. But if they ever come back, we're ready. We're just. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was immediately obsolete. It was it was humiliating. Uh, yeah, there there is nothing. I I keep on thinking of all the computer courses I took uh, back in college, and there is really nothing in there that I've had an application for since then. It's all been uh, except like, the process, right? The yeah, process the process. Yeah. Thinking methodically and and not being sloppy and making sure the computer does what you want it to do and not what it thinks you want it to do. Yeah, I mean, getting to the point, I mean, like, you don't have to worry about it anymore. There were things like the, you know, the, the busy command where you had to let it, you had to let it wait for it to read the next card. So it just had to sit there and don't do anything. Let it finish reading the card. And once you get the card information, then you can go do the next step. And, you know, people don't have to worry about that anymore, uh, at least not, in, you know, not in the kind of programming that people do nowadays. You realize that to many of your listeners, we sound like Philo Farnsworth sitting around talking about, you know, the first days of radio or something. Yeah, back, <laughs> back in the day, sewing the canvas onto the onto the spars to, you know, get, get the ship up at Kitty Hawk. But it's, it's, this this is what was going on while you know while Stone and Levitt were uh, were sitting there at their at their little keypads and such. Which um, which uh, you know back then looked like the height of high tech. It looked like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, man. What oh, they had going in in Wildfire. Yeah, yeah, they should be able to go into hyperspace any moment just by pushing the right combination of buttons. Uh, but yeah, it's it was such it was that was when the future was really fun. You thought someday I'm going to be able to just you know pick up a <laughs> microphone and tell tell the computer what you know uh, what I want it to do. And you know nowadays you're you're telling your your computer's name is Siri and you're asking it what the weather's going to be in Denver tomorrow. I don't know um, if the Andromeda strain really reflects, reflects the idea that the future is going to be fun. The future is is being threatened by a uh, planet destroying uh, uh, thing, alien. Yeah. 
Yeah, but the 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 smart the smart kids are on our our side though in this. That's true. Like, oh, they'll figure it out. They they got they got big brains. They'll 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 get it all worked out. Yeah. Um, well, speaking I, of big brains, in this minute, I um, I was stunned what happens in this minute because in the last minute, Levitt it was Levitt who was making these intuitive, imaginative leaps of logic and wants to start talking about life, and and in this minute. Stone leaps right out of any sane understanding of physics. <laughs> you know, I mean, they start to have this conversation, and, and they're looking at this little rock, and, and Stone says, I doubt that's what knocked it off its trajectory. And, and Levitt says, unless the rock was going tremendous speed or unless the rock was terribly heavy. Good, good for her. That's right. That's, Basic Newtonian physics. Yeah, That's you're... physics. She's solid. And, and, and then they start talking about, um, uh, you know, Stone is... He talks about, well, I could lift the thing so it's not heavy, but he totally dismisses her tremendous speed point. Um, although I guess since it just dented this copper mesh, mesh and it didn't shoot all the way through, we could probably do some back-of-the-envelope calculations and figure out how fast the thing was going when it hit. And then Stone says, it's possible that the rock is different in space. Out there it might do anything. Ugh. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? And then, and then Levitt says... Well, maybe it has elastic properties we don't even know about yet. And and I think that sounds to me like she's just trying to cover up Stone's obviously boneheaded opinion and trying to help him save face. Because this whole business of, well, it's possible the rock is different in space is just, no, no, it's not. It's, 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 it's got a certain help. mass and, and yeah. it you know, it's not like it, it changed mass or shape or size or, you know, no, it's a rock. It anyway i was uh, i was yeah, amused no, yeah. and outraged fake outraged yeah she she does do a nice co you know covering of oh maybe it's got elastic properties but you know, come on <laughs> yeah like the, you know, okay what's that F mean? equals it, ma that's the rule that's the it, rule it should have bounced universe. off what are you saying uh, but this um, whole you know out there it might do anything it's it's uh it's sort of reminds me of you know sort of a marvel comics view of of space like you, you go you know, 70 miles above the surface of the earth and, and you might come down with the ability to burst into flames, you know, or, yeah, or yeah, turn yeah. into a rock monster or something. Anything <laughs> could go out there. It's 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 terrifying the the lack of knowledge on and somewhere somebody put that in the script. And yeah. I don't know. I don't I, I can't imagine Crichton would do this. I have to go back and look at the book for this particular page, but uh it it just Levitt is the level-headed one on this conversation. Yeah, and when when a minute ago she was the one who was kind of out there, and Stone's like, "Well, now we better, you know, we're going to go through the process. We're going to be calm, and methodical, and you know, maybe the laws of physics are different in space." <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's it's a real I, turn. Yeah, I, I was trying to figure out when she was saying elastic properties. Is she, I mean, she's actually talking about physical elasticity of a, you know, like it, it will it will stretch itself out and then go back into a rock shape well I didn't I, I wondered the same thing the best I could figure she was kind of talking about something like Captain America's shield which which will either bounce off perfectly or deaden perfectly depending on the needs of the plot you know yeah yeah so it may be perfect elasticity or something kind something of a, like that uh, I don't know but yeah I, I think you're right she's just like this guy's uh, you know, Looney Tunes for saying that. But here's here's the only thing I could here's the only hypothesis I could hand out that would make any of your stuff make sense. <laughs> but uh, uh, again, my compliments to Robert Wise for for the uh, cinematic storytelling here because um, you know the tension grows um, and it's amazing that the tension grows through this scene because it's just two people looking at a 
a TV screen on the wall, but the tension grows as we zoom in on this rock closer and closer up to 100x and um, and oh my God, we see the green stuff and it's yeah. just um, it's terrific. I, I just uh, you know for its flaws, I, I really enjoy this this piece of of the film. Yeah, and I do like, as you were saying, that uh, Levitt does a 180 here. She goes, well, maybe they, they do look like splashes of paint. This might be something that we're just looking at and we're overthinking it. So It's quite a cliffhanger, isn't it? I can't wait to find out what happens in the next minute. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, yeah, it it, 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 it it pulls you along. You're like, well, what is it then? What You know, and it's, of, of all the things, a splotch of green paint in a, uh, you know, inside of a spaceship you would never expect that this would be in a major blockbuster movie. That this, you know, this is one of the one of the bigger sellers of 1971, and we're looking at uh, weird green dots inside of a inside of a spaceship. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, very. Uh, is this? I, I've been thinking of other science movies, and of the time, I think this was one of the hardest in terms of hard science versus. Uh, you know, uh, Marvel Comics science. I think this was one of the hardest science science movies of that era. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think back to uh, I guess it was a little earlier, but movies like Marooned, um, you know, this this yeah. space rescue movie that was they were they, they played a little fast and loose with some orbital stuff, but that was pretty hard. Um, I would argue that um, despite two thousand and one's ending, uh, Kubrick played that as straight as he could. I mean, he he. Uh, you know, consulted with all the right consultants, and he really gave some thought to what space travel in the future might look like and feel like and be like. And in some ways, I think has been unsurpassed. Uh, I just I love two thousand one. I wouldn't call it hard science fiction because of what happens at the end, but um, I think a lot of it holds up. Yeah, I I, I agree. And the, who knew that uh, Hal would be one of the more realistic portions of it. I mean, as we get closer and closer on AI stuff, the idea of handing, you know, as you experienced in the 70s with Eliza, that conversational uh, motif between humans and their machine counterparts, it, it, we're not quite at, uh, at at passing the Turing test yet, but it's getting pretty darn close. I think my Siri tried to kill me last night. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it it and it's it is spooky, especially you have to be you almost have to kind of watch your words around her because if you say the wrong sequence, she suddenly <laughs> goes into you know giving you uh, the racetrack analysis from Hialeah, which isn't that disinterested. Um, I'm afraid I can't do that, Brian. Yeah, it's actually let me just see something here. Uh, hey Siri, tell me a joke. A sloth walks into a coffee shop, waves to get the barista's attention, and says, "I'll have." A cappuccino. The barista says, hey, why the long pause? <laughs> now, if Hal could tell a joke like that, they would yeah. have never deactivated him. No, see, it, it, it's just one of, the, one of those things that you, here we are living in the future. This is one of the things you hadn't expected would be uh, part of this. Although, um, if I remember correctly, in uh, 19... I want to say 1951, Turing. Yeah, I know where you're going. Yeah, he said he said that uh, that two women would be walking in a park someday, and the one would say, "My computer said the funniest thing this morning," and yeah. and that's th- that is true. That's where we're at now. We had a we have a joke telling computer, um, which 
uh, this is yeah, as, as you frequently touch on in, in your in your many many writings, this isn't the future we were weren't expecting, but maybe the future we deserve. This is <laughs> well, yeah, for for good and ill. Maybe we had this coming. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's fascinating. It where... is the future of many marvels and yes. many and many dangers. Yeah, um, and uh, I, I don't think I don't think it's steerable. I think this kind of it, you can plan on ha- having things happen in the future, but the future happens while we were planning something else. Um, it, it's just uh, I I keep thinking that there. I, I keep well. We're going back to Asimov again. You know that uh, the Foundation series um, that you could plot the future, but it turns out there's so many rogue elements that if you try to make any kind of a computation about the future, the future is going to change right. uh, to ways that you can, no matter how hard you try to figure out all oh, this, this has to happen because we can do this, this, and this, but it spins us off in other directions. All you can do is just do a rough guess of what the future is going to look like. Well, and the future always reflects our own limitations. And, and uh, you know, I mean, one of the fun parts of retrofuturism is looking back at what people in, you know, 1890 thought 1990 was going to look like. And it's, you know, it's a lot of steam power hot air balloons and very fast uh you know steam trains and and it's uh nothing nothing's right uh, i mean if, and once in a while the few things they get right it just sometimes knocks your teeth out it but astonishingly close you know i i remember uh you know some people in the 1800s uh foresaw television and things like that it's like wow good on you but they also <laughs> they also thought we'd be you know, piloting sailing ships to the moon kind of thing so yeah yeah it's um it, the future is not what we expected but it's it's enjoyable trying to trying to see how how people thought you know things were things were going to happen i keep in in this time period my favorite uh dystopian look at the future was uh colossus the forbin project I oh thought that, i love that yes that look of the uh, computers out thinking you know, people have, this is, the, you know, we'll give them the, the codes to uh, nuclear devices. And of course, people aren't safe. So we'll have to, just to be, uh, just to make sure that uh, the world is safe, that uh, humans become subjected, sub- subjugated by the, uh, by the computers, which is, a, I mean, gosh, you know, even uh, I, Mud in uh, Star Trek <laughs> had that same idea. So it's, well, it's not I, a new I idea, but it's an interesting plan. application. Yeah, uh, Colossus. What was the name of the Russian version of Colossus? Uh, Guardian. 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 Yeah, and when Guardian and Colossus start talking to each other and taking over the world, man, it's chilling. And yeah. and it starred uh, Eric Braden, right? That's right. Yeah, from the Rat Patrol. Eric Braden did. Uh, he was both the good guy and bad guy in more science fiction movies through the seventies and probably into the eighties. Uh, what? Just one of those terrific actors. Kind of reminds me of like John Saxon, who is he was just in everything. Yeah, yeah, and he's gosh, he's had a, such an incredible second, third, and fourth careers, uh, being on The Young and the Restless for decades, and uh, still going strong. So, uh, oh, I just, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's their major. Uh, I, I guess he's their he's their major good guy and bad guy at the same time. He's the he's the Darth Vader of their series. Excellent, good um, for him. So uh, yeah, good good to see that uh, <laughs> it's steady steady working guy. He's he's uh, he's really you know that that's what you get for being a good actor. Um, Wow. Well, I'm trying to think of movies that have this positive kind of a a message in, like you were saying, that we, we kind of have mostly dystopian future I- ideas. I can't think of movies recently that have had, um, you know, other than the fancy, you know, the Marvel comics kind of thing, I can't think of science movies set for the future that are n- not dystopian Dude, or. The Martian. 
Okay, there you go. Hard science, very yes. positive, competence, porn, the best people in the world solving the problem. Yes, that's true. And uh, except for that uh, orbital thing at the very end. It, oh, yeah. I'm, there's, some, there's some baloney, but um, it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, I like that movie very much. Oh, and, awesome. and don't forget the dust storm at the beginning either. That's, uh, there's, yeah. there's nothing, nothing good about that <laughs> dust storm, nothing right, but it sure is dramatic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a uh, uh, dust storm at the uh, sea level equivalent of 102,000 feet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sure. It's blowing over buildings and yeah. knocking people over. It's, yeah. I just, I just. I felt a uh, whisper. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the idea that you can, uh, that, that somebody's on one orbit and they can jump over to another orbit. Well, that. That just gives me, yeah. That, We've see, talked uh, about gravity before. Oh, there's yeah, a yeah. space station. Gra I'll go there. Yeah. Point yeah, it at the space station. We'll get there. It's okay. Yeah. Gravity makes me want me to rip my eyebrows out. I just. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, we won't go there. But uh, it's, uh, it, it's, there's good and bad in the world. And watching, watching things like The Martian make, gives me hope that they'll make good hard science, hard science, science fiction movies in the future. I, I have to say The Expanse. Uh, as a series, does a great job of uh, giving you possible uh, futures of both the politics and the technological side of what it would be like um, colonizing the outer solar system. Have not uh, seen it. Uh, worth worthwhile seeing. If you like um, Larry Niven's no, known space books, it's very similar to that, where you have a, a belt economy and an Earth economy, and uh, the two are kind of at war with each other because it's two different uh economic systems fighting over limited resources only now it's expanded to the solar system so a lot of intrigue a lot of tech uh if you get a chance to see it i re strongly recommend it i hope your listeners uh, are enjoying this conversation <laughs> Some, <somewhere. laughs> we, we have really we have wandered pretty far off the beam on this one but i'm enjoying it very much thank you that's true and uh well we are we're ending this with a, a high resolution view of uh of green patches that just look like pneumonia to me and um, incredibly suspenseful i i you know i'm going to come back next monday just to find out what these green patches are <laughs> awesome well, we'll have we'll have it all ready for you ready to go um and yet and ending with a yet i think that I, I was trying to figure out if that's a triple split diopter but uh it might not be um it just looks very very complicated shot there but uh, we'll find out maybe maybe monday we'll we'll know um, Brian, one uh, book that I didn't mention is uh, your first uh, major book, which uh, anyone, as as a cancer survivor, I can strongly recommend uh, your book, uh, Mom's Cancer, which tells a very personal story of uh, not only, you know, as a title, your mom's cancer, but also how your family reacted and responded uh, to this uh, li literally life-threatening disease. Yeah, th oh, thank you so much for mentioning it. Yeah, it was my first graphic novel. It was um, a true. It's a true story of my family as we navigated my mom's diagnosis treatment for metastatic lung cancer and um, it's really about the family it's it's um, nominally about the cancer but really about the cancer's effect on the family and uh, you know for good and bad and, and it was, it's it's as honest as I could make it um, one, one of the great gratifications one of the great things that's happened to me in my life is has been the re, as a result of that book I've gotten to know you know, people all over the world. Uh, the book came out in 2006. It's still in print. Uh, it's being taught in medical schools. It's been translated into uh, many languages, including recently Portuguese, which just tickles oh. me very much. Um, and so um, I, I'm very proud of that work. And it's it's continues to have a, a good 
long life with and without me. Um, it's gotten me invited to medical conferences. And, um, you know, I, I, none of that was intended. What I intended to do was sort of to, to make a roadmap for people coming along behind us so they wouldn't be surprised by the things we were surprised by. And it has served that purpose, but it's also turned out to be just so much richer than I ever thought it could. So thanks for mentioning it. Yeah, it is a, it's, it's about lung cancer, but I have to tell you, it really is a universal story. It, it, anybody who's gone through a, a similar situation with this, every, the, you hit so many notes that you say, gosh, I remember when it was like that too. So I, I can strongly recommend, if you're going to start on the, uh, the Brian Fee's uh, bibliography, I would strongly recommend trying out uh, Mom's Cancer. It is, it's quite a, a stunning uh, work. I, I can't recommend it enough. Well, thank you so much. Um, that means a lot coming from you. Thank you very much. Well, again, Brian, thanks for being on the show. It's always uh, great having having you in to talk science and movies and and just being an being an old guy in this century that we're living in. Um, it's uh, <laughs> we're not uh, old, Jim. No, no, no. They just the the fact that nobody nobody bothers checking with you or carding you when you're getting the senior discount. That's when you start realizing, oh, oh yeah. yeah, getting up there. So it's uh it's do so far so good. That's that's how you look at it. I, I've been oh. gray since I was thirty. So. Uh, <laughs> I'm taking the Steve Martin strategy. You know, if you're gray your whole adult life, you look like you never age. That's that's my goal. <laughs> awesome. I, I, well, I'm going to adopt that immediately. Um, wow. Well, again, thanks for being on the show. Uh, we will have many more minutes to come, and hopefully you'll be on a future episode, maybe uh, when there's uh, nuclear nuclear stuff happening, because there's always always more things to talk about. Oh, I, I really wish you'd save more boring, boring minutes for me, Jim. <laughs> okay. Those are the well, sweet. That's my sweet spot. Yeah, I'll see if they have if there's anything like an audit or something coming up. We can <laughs> we can chat chat about that. If they talk about the uh, the bookkeeping of uh, of Project Wildfire, that's, if there's that's paperwork, I'm there, buddy. Okay, great. Well, well, uh, join us here next week. Uh, we will have a new new guest and a new week to talk about the the same old uh, green snot that's on a on a spaceship. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, while you're waiting through this weekend, uh, follow through the same three things that I, I please. Just do this so we can get through this plague as soon as possible. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and try to stay six feet apart. It's easy to tell six feet apart. Just hold out your hands like you're that uh, Leonardo da Vinci picture. The Vitruvian uh, Man. There you go, Vitruvian. So get 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 Vitruvian this weekend and just, just keep that distance, and hopefully we can get through this plague ASAP. Uh, we will see you here next time on the Andromeda Weekend. Oh, <laughs> I'm in the Andromeda Weekend now. I'm Andromeda Minute. Very flattering. We don't know much more than when we got here. <laughs>